Hello, friends, and welcome to the Caroline Glyke Show. Caroline here. I'm your host. On this podcast, we're going to be exploring a variety of topics from adventure and activism, climate change messaging, mountaineering, skiing, relationships, and how we can use sport to change the world. I'm thrilled to chat with today's guest. I first met Molly Kawahata when she worked as a policy advisor for energy and climate at the White House during the Obama administration. I remember I was invited onto this call about a climate initiative by the White House. I was so excited and I accidentally messed up the time on the call and missed it while I was on a trail run. I was so incredibly disappointed, but luckily I was able to join a future call. Molly started the Act on Climate social media campaign, which currently has over 130,000 posts. That's what the call was about. So I got to meet Molly later on a trip to Washington, D.C. with Protect Our Winners, and we instantly bonded. Now she works on clean energy in the tech sector and is on the board of the San Francisco League of Conservation Voters. She's one of the brightest people I know with a special talent for climate messaging. Today, we're going to chat about voting, climate, her mountain adventures, and she's going to give us tips for how we can improve our messaging on climate and become more effective as activists. Molly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Caroline. It's great to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. Where are you calling in from today? I am in San Francisco, California, where we are all indoors. How, how are you handling quarantine and coronavirus? Um, you know, it's it's a it's a pretty concerning time, um, I think, for everybody. And um, you know, it's a lot of indoor time. So I know for all of us that love being outside, it's you know an, an interesting challenge to kind of learn some new activities of you know what to do inside. But um, it's going well. A lot of people here are working from home. We're lucky enough to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's been definitely a challenge for me because this is usually the time of year where. I'm out doing big mountain objectives, ski mountaineering, but, um, you know, I'm grateful to just have a good house and zone to post up at and to tackle some other projects I've been neglecting. So, so I wanted to jump in now to talking about climate because that's kind of how we got to know each other. And something that everybody asks is what can I do to become a climate activist? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. And, you know, a lot of people kind of get different advice when they're the main question is right away, what can I do? Like, I really care about climate change. I read the articles. I'm concerned. How do I move forward and contribute to this? Um, And the first thing I always tell people, it's actually a very clear action item is register people to vote. And there's a great website you can go to to get involved. Uh, It's Michelle Obama's organization, whenweallvote.org. Okay. You don't have to be a special person. You don't have to have special skills. They will train you. And it's super easy. And it's also really fun. You know, you get to be out in your community. You get to go to the local farmer's market. Um, You get to talk to folks and bring them into the political process. So it's an incredibly rewarding experience. And it's very impactful. And... um, You know, to give you an example, the Obama campaign really focused on voter registration, um, especially in his his first uh, campaign in 2008. And they invested a lot of resources into that. And when the election happened, all of these people who had never voted for the first time came out and vote. And those people were his margin of victory. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when we really think about it, um, these things have impact. So Voter registration is a really big deal, and it's something we take really seriously. And if campaigns, you know, if it wasn't effective, campaigns wouldn't invest nearly as many resources into it as we do. So this is a place where people have real impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It was pretty cool as I was Googling you and looking up, doing some research on you for today's episode. One of the images that came up when I Googled your name is you and Obama. (laughs) <laughs> and it was it was incredible. It's such a cool shot. I, I would love to have a shot like that as well. So um, what else can we do to get young people more excited to vote? You know, it's, it's a, always a challenge. And I, I really believe you have to meet people where they are. Um, there's a lot of messaging out there that we know from behavioral science is not effective. And um, it's, it sounds very counterintuitive. So a lot of folks, you know, activists will go out there and they'll say, young people do not vote. 
people are not involved. And they'll put out all of these statistics that are really grim and um, kind of discouraging. And that's the exact effect that has. Uh, when you tell people they're doing a bad job or they're, you know, people in their generation are doing a bad job, it actually has the effect of discouraging people from coming out. It is not motivating. Um, interestingly enough, when you actually create an identity, and rather than say, get out and vote, you say something like, be a voter, that has impact. And we also know from uh, studies in psychology and behavioral science that the number one way to get somebody out to vote is to tell them that everybody else is doing it. And it's actually specifically to tell a household uh, which people in their neighborhood have voted. Um, it's incredibly impactful. Uh, peer pressure works very effectively um, in the political realm. And it is because other people are getting out there, other people are involved, and that is highly motivating. Um, so when people are talking about messaging, it needs to be forward-looking, it needs to be positive. Um, and the more we talk about how terribly people are doing things, the less motivated they are, just in psychology, um, to take action. So it's really important we have this positive messaging. Well, that's so interesting because even just the way that I had framed this question, how can we get young people more excited to vote? I realize that that framing alone is kind of problematic because it's assuming that young people aren't excited to vote. And I really liked what you just said too about having this identity because some of the voting messaging that I've worked on with Patagonia is encouraging people to vote the environment or vote the climate. So is that an effective way to encourage people? I mean, to be clear, uh, the statistics don't lie. You know, we go off facts and there are realities around challenges voting groups have with getting out there. Um, the idea is in how we message the action. So what we really want to do, exactly like you're describing, you know, you can say vote the environment. What's more effective, what's proven to be more effective is actually to say, be a climate voter, be an environmental voter. Um, join all of us who are doing this, right? Uh, that's extremely effective. So it, it's really interesting. This We know this exists in science. We know this exists in how people behave. And we can take these lessons and apply them in ways that are really impactful. And so President Obama um, had an enormously high youth vote rate. And he also got new voters out to vote who hadn't voted in decades or had never voted, even older voters. And he really did that with a positive message of join us, be a part of this. There's a lot that we can do together versus saying nobody's taking action. No one's doing this well enough. Young people, you have never voted. We need you to do better. It's just not as effective. Thanks for that advice. I really appreciate that. And I think that can really help guide some messaging going forward. Another thing that I've heard from people when they talk about things that get in the way or like sticky points when it comes to voting is they feel like with the big ticket items, it's really clear who to vote for in terms of being a climate voter. But when they get down to these other smaller state or city council, or sometimes there's like the school board positions or these initiatives at the bottom of the ballot, they get a little bit hung up and confused. So are, do you have any ideas on how we could support each other and make it easier for people to vote and to help guide their decisions the whole way through the, the ballot? Yeah, and it can be challenging, right? I mean, it is hard. Everybody is really busy. And even those of us who really read the news and are really aware of what's going on, you still get things on your ballot and you really have to, you know, kind of figure out what they're talking about. So it is a challenge. And I think people shouldn't beat themselves up over the fact that they might know not know right away which judge to vote for. Um, that's There are some tools to help with that. And a lot of environmental or climate organizations um, that are very very forward looking on these issues that follow them left and right, actually create voter guides for folks who, um, you know, care about the environment. They know they want to vote for the environment. They want to be environmental voters, um, but they want some guide. They want to hear from experts on how they've analyzed these policies and, and what's going to really have impact. So I think those are great resources to use and take advantage of. Um, one for the environmental space is the League of Conservation Voters. They do a lot of work in this space, and they also have a lot of local branches that 
actually sit down with candidates and talk to them and kind of test them on these issues to make sure they're truly environmentally minded. Um, that's something we do in the San Francisco League of Conservation Voters. And then, you know, we talk to San Franciscans about um, who's really looking out for them on these issues. So those are definitely resources that can be helpful. And also, you know, Googling. Googling can just be really effective. It's, it's what a lot of people have to do, you know, when they're going through their ballot. Um, but at the end of the day, the message we always put out there is that voting is super easy and everybody can do it. And you don't have to be a genius to be able to do it. You don't have to be special. You can just get out there and do it. And um, it won't necessarily, you know, take up a huge amount of your day. Um, and we also really encourage people to vote by mail. So if it's available, everybody who can, we highly encourage that. It's just so much easier. Um, you don't have to kind of figure out when in your day you're going to make it work on election day um, or early voting. You can just do it from home. So. Yeah, and it takes out so much of the stress on election day being at the polling booth and not knowing those answers. I started registering to vote by mail quite a few years ago, and it's just made the whole like filling out the ballot so much easier for me and less stressful because I can sit with my computer. I can Google all those weird, obscure issues at the bottom, and they're always phrased in like, a very confusing way I feel like, like they use a double negative or something like yeah. that. <laughs> um, but the League of Conservation Voters, I wanted to go back to that because I'm going to link to that into the in the show notes. And that is just such an incredible resource to help people figure out who is the right candidate for the environment and for the for, to have climate in mind. Absolutely. And there are a lot of nonprofits out there who who really follow these issues closely. For anybody who's in the Bay Area, the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, APEN, they're a nonprofit based out of Oakland, California, and they have done so much stuff to really make social justice a bigger issue in the climate discussions and to really lift up these communities that have been most impacted by the effects of climate change for decades, long before anybody was talking about that or paying attention to that in the environmental realm. So there are a lot of groups like this and, you know, really think in terms of who are they looking out for and what issues are they caring about? And um, when you can kind of develop that trust, you know, you can really look into what their analysts who do this full time are, are finding when they're analyzing these policies. But at the end of the day, voting is really easy. And um, it's something that everybody can do. And another thing uh, that a lot of people don't know about, obviously, who you vote for is confidential, absolutely confidential. But whether you vote is public. A lot of people don't know that. Um, anybody can go online and actually see if you voted. And so that's actually something campaigns have started to talk more about because um, that's part of this identity and being a part of this voting movement uh, that other people are doing this and that everybody can join in. And it's really easy. And um, it's something that we want more folks to do. I wanted to ask you more about voter suppression efforts in general, because it seems like every year we're facing more and more threats that are trying to undermine our access to voting. And can you talk a little bit about those and what we can do to stand up for democracy and to make voting easier to access? Yeah, you know, it is a disturbing reality that this is happening. Um, the idea that because Republicans don't like that people aren't voting for them, rather than work to appeal to people with their policies and what they're doing, they just work to disenfranchise them. Um, I, I mean, it's a truly astonishing strategy. It's been really scary to see what's been happening with that. Absolutely scary. And this is not a new thing. Um, literacy tests existed before, right, that were intended to very actively um, disenfranchise black voters. And the thing about these policies, um, these voter suppression policies are very much targeted at people of color. And um, that's very much, that's very deliberate. And that's a really, really horrifying thing that we really need to address very actively. Um, and there are efforts that are happening to make voting easier for folks. And again, people who are out there registering people to vote, they're registering people to vote who have never voted before. Either they just came of age or they've never gotten the chance to register. 
Um, you know, some people obviously actively choose not to, but oftentimes, you know, when I was in Ohio and we're out registering people to vote, um, they just said, you know, nobody's come through our neighborhood before. And, um, we didn't know how to do it in an alternative way. And thank you for coming to my door because now I can register and I can be a part of this electorate. That's a really big deal. And so I think, um, you know, kind of being in the face of that and doing everything we can to enfranchise as many people as possible. And to be clear, we're not registering people by party. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very non-political process in which we're just trying to give people the right that they are entitled to so that they can show up at the polls and be a part of this and have their equities represented. That's really what this is about. That's really cool. Another thing that is really cool that's happening in the voting sphere is Patagonia's movement, Time to Vote, where they're giving employees part of the day or the whole day off to go vote. Is that something you think more brands should be doing? Absolutely. And and companies should be doing. And actually, in a lot of states, this is law. In California, it's required. Um, so, it, you know, it is really important. This is all about voter access. This is what we're talking about when we talk about these things, making it easier for people to vote. And that's why voting by mail is really important that you can do it on your own time. Um, it, it can be very challenging to kind of fit election day into your schedule. And um, especially for folks who don't have the luxury of having time off during the day or are working two jobs or just incredibly busy with childcare, taking care of a relative. I mean, it can be really challenging to fit it in. Um, and so it's very important that we have forward-looking policies like that, that again, are deliberately intended to enfranchise people and make it so that their voice can be heard in an election, that they get that chance. I had this other idea for election day that I wanted to run by you. And that is, and I don't know if this is legal or because I know there's a lot of laws around voting, but I was thinking it would be cool to have like a ballot filling out party where I get a bunch of my friends together and we fill out our ballots together. Is that a good idea? And is that legal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no reason that that's not allowed. Um, That's definitely something that can happen. I think there are folks that do that. I mean, there are definitely organizations that are out there to help folks vote, to help them get out there, to help them make sure that they have the information they need. Um, The more things that people can do, I mean, people can get creative about this and thinking about what can I do, what role can I play, and helping people have their voice heard. Okay, I'm going to start planning that party. I'm really excited about that. (laughs) Sounds good. Invite me. Okay. (laughs) It sounds like a blast. Although I think it would have to be with people in my district because there's so many, you know, um, I'm you, maybe you can like join us electronically now that we're getting (laughs) so good at, at video conferencing. (laughs) I mean, absolutely. Definitely ballots are going to be different per, even per, uh, like County, you're going to have very specific things in your ballot. And so it is really important that, you know, folks can get together if they want to talk about those issues and they want to get feedback and advice and kind of understand how other people are looking at them. That's definitely, you know, ample opportunity. I think that would be fun. And maybe I'll consult you about what kind of um, cake, like should we have a ballot cake or cookies or something? (laughs) (laughs) Some of the party favors. I think, yeah, we definitely need to brainstorm ways we can make it more fun. So I think the ballot party could be a good idea. I love that. And even before, you know, you can have a voter registration get together, you know, you and a few friends go out to the farmer's market, register voters, uh, do it on a Sunday. It's, it's really fun. You get to talk to people in your community um, and you get to do something that's really impactful in people's lives. I love that. That's such a great action item that everybody could start doing tomorrow. And it's not as polarizing as becoming a climate activist. How else can people influence legislative efforts on climate? Yes. So this is a really interesting issue. And again, you get a lot of these questions that are like, I care about climate change. What can I do? And a lot of people feel very powerless here. And I don't really think that we need to feel that way. Um, Again, the number one action I give people is to register to vote uh, and to register others to vote. And really, we can just take a step back and think about climate change. Uh, Climate change is a systems issue. It is a structural issue. It's not just a normal problem. This is a crisis. And CDP has actually found that 71% of the world's carbon emissions are due to 100 companies. So 
this is where I take a step back and I actually think, okay, where do we have impact? Um, and I caution people from kind of overstating the impacts of individual actions that you can take in your own life. Now, I think those things are great. And anybody who has the time and resources and ability to make personal changes in their life, these small changes, you know, biking to work, uh, stopping to eat meat, um, you know, like these little things, that's all wonderful and great. Um, however, we can't take our focus off of the fact that climate change is a structures issue that demands uh, solutions at scale. And when I talk about solutions at scale, I'm really, I'm talking about policy because, you know, somebody can't compete with a, you know, a power plant that's burning fossil fuels and polluting the air for the community around it. We can't compete with that in our own lives. Um, that demands us to actually go in and decarbonize the electricity sector. We have to do this at scale. And I can give you kind of like two scenarios we just think about to think about this issue. So scenario one, you read an article about climate change, it alarms you, it worries you, you want to take action, great. You devise that you're going to take big action in your own life. You're going to actually try and put a big dent in your carbon footprint. Now to do that, it's actually a lot harder than people think, because we're really talking about very tiny cuts in emissions. Um, so to take big action to, for example, cut your carbon footprint in half. And there's a really great podcast, The Interchange. They actually ran the numbers on this, on individual personal actions people can take and, um, you know, found some really fascinating things in terms of how this adds up. Um, to cut your carbon footprint in half, that could look like things like you have to give up your car. You can never get on a plane again. You can't eat meat. You can't purchase anything that was, was not grown or manufactured locally. So you're very limited in your consumption. And um, you might even have to shut down your heat and power in your house during certain hours of the day, especially peak hours when you probably need it most. Really extreme life impacting decisions and changes. Now, say you did that. You really care about climate change. You did that. Now, across town, there's a fossil fuel, fuel power plant. And it's spewing pollution into the air. And the community that lives there is forced to breathe that air. And their children are suffering from enormously high asthma rates. And that part is true. We know that communities of color are significantly likelier to have to live next to things like uh, power plants, polluting highways, toxic waste sites. The NAACP has done a lot of work in uncovering these truths. And uh, you can see the results in their public health issues that, for example, one in 10 African-American children suffer from asthma. 10% of children suffer from asthma in the African-American community. I mean, these are really horrifying, disturbing statistics that we have to wake up to. So in this scenario, you have to ask yourself, you've made all of these really difficult changes in your life, you've made life pretty hard for yourself. What have you done for them? What action did you take that impacted them and kind of looked at climate change from a structural standpoint? So scenario two. Uh, so basically, like what I'm getting at is this is what we talk about when we're talking about social justice and climate justice. This is what we're talking about. So in scenario two, let's say you read an article about climate change. It alarms you. It scares you. You want to take action. Great. You go and get three friends and you guys register people to vote in your free time. And you give people the opportunity to be a part of the electorate for the first time. They're enfranchised. And the next election comes around and they vote and new candidates come in. Candidates that really care about taking climate action. And those candidates, let's say, implement a renewable portfolio standard for your state, which is actively going to be increasing the percentage of renewable energy in your state's energy portfolio. Now, with time say that fossil fuel plant across town, it shuts down and the air starts to clean up. Under these scenarios, which one had more impact? And at the end of the day, like obviously these are completely oversimplified scenarios and there's a lot more nuance than you know I can really give in, in such a short period. But what's not an oversimplification is who you are focusing on. Were you focusing on yourself or were you focusing on others? 
climate change is a social justice issue. And so that's how I think we need to be thinking about it. And the interchange in this, you know, when they actually ran the numbers on all of these changes you can make in your life to have a dent in your carbon footprint, the reality, sadly, is that they are tiny changes around the edges. It doesn't really make a dent. And so when we're talking about fighting climate change, we're talking about something much bigger. When we're talking about, you know, making those individual changes, that's a really great way to live out your truths and align your life with your own values. And anybody who is doing those things, I think that's wonderful and they should keep doing them. Um, But we need to kind of separate addressing climate change with those kind of living a more environmental life. Um, And again, everything helps and everybody should keep doing it. Uh, My other caution on this issue And Emma Maris in the New York Times actually said it really well. She was talking about the fact that we kind of pit environmental sinners against environmental saints. And there's a lot of privilege that's a part of being able to make individual changes in your life that I think people don't always realize or acknowledge. Um, There's a lot of, you need time and resources and knowledge to be able to make those changes. And a simple example If you have the privilege of being able to ride your bike to work, which is great, and if you're doing it, please keep doing it. If you have that ability to do that, that means you own a bike, which a lot of people don't. And, you know, there are real families that are making real decisions between having to choose between their groceries or their prescription drugs. You cannot expect somebody like that to go out and purchase a bike. You have to have lived close enough to your job to be able to bike there, which some people commute one hour, two hours to work. That's not an option. Three, you live somewhere where it's safe for you to bike outside. If you have a community with bike lanes, a lot of communities do not. Um, You also have to know how to ride a bike. And that's a privilege a lot of people don't think about. If you learned as a kid, you had somebody in your life that had enough time in order to teach you that had the knowledge to be able to teach you and that also had a bike, had the resources to have a bike. Um, And five, you live somewhere where the air is clean enough, where if you bike to work, you don't get sick. Now, all of these facets of privilege go into that, that become five and more barriers for somebody else to be able to take those same actions. So when people really use their platform to focus on individual changes, um, really, you're talking to a smaller and smaller group that's more and more privileged because somebody who's working two jobs and trying to get by isn't going to be able to make those same changes. Even things like going vegetarian. And again, if you have gone vegetarian for environmental reasons, I commend you and please keep doing it. But telling somebody else that they need to do that is not always realistic because for anybody that's not familiar with what a food desert is, I encourage you to Google it. But there are people that don't have access to fresh food in this country. Um, There are people whose groceries are out of 7-Elevens. A lot of people don't realize this. So expecting somebody like that to make a significant limitation in what they can purchase to consume is not realistic. Um, So for the two reasons of scale and privilege, I think it's really important how we're talking about the individual behavioral changes people make in their lives. And when we're talking about climate change and climate solutions, that's something else. And that's when registering people to vote and being out there and influencing policy for us to actually decarbonize these sectors, that's going to have a much bigger impact. Um, What the reality is, is we are stuck in a system where we don't have those choices yet. And for us to get more of those choices, we really need to be looking at policy. You need to be looking at decarbonizing the source, decarbonizing the sector. So I think it's really important that we also think about this. It's this eco-saints versus eco-sinners concept that Emma Maris coined. Uh, We really need to be keeping that in mind. And I think, you know, there's also something called opportunity cost, which is time spent telling folks to be making individual changes in their life, and again, it's a smaller and smaller and more privileged group, is time taken away from talking about climate change as a structural systems issue. Um, So, you know, there are choices we're making here, and those that have the privilege and time in their life to do both, I think that's wonderful. Um, But when we talk about climate change as a problem and who we're going to try and fix it for, um, that's a different conversation. 
There's so much that you just said that was so amazing. And, and just going back to how you described at the beginning of everything you just said, the scenario one, where you rapidly cut your carbon in half and how energetically draining that was versus the second scenario where you go out and you get people registered to vote and you elect a pe people who enact renewable energy standards. I mean, just energetically listening to you, like one of them, it just made me shrink up and the other one really felt more expansive. And it just, exactly. you know, one made me feel powerful and the other one made me feel powerless. And I think that's such a false dichotomy that the environmental and climate movement that they get into. And I think a lot of it is from fossil fuel influence campaigns where they try to put this shame and guilt and burden on the individual. And I've certainly felt that in my life going on my climate activism journey, where there were times when the bullies and the naysayers and the environmental police who are, you know, this like social pressure and these people on social media who like call you out if you use a single plastic straw, like the, I don't know, it's just sometimes it would get so intense. It felt like it was hard for me to speak about anything. I, like, I felt like I couldn't do anything right because I was the, like using the single use plastic or flying, I was like the sinner. And once you're branded as messing up, it's hard to get out of that feeling of being a failure or a disappointment. Yeah. And I think that's a really problematic part of how we're talking about climate change. It's completely um, unproductive because this idea that you are telling people they cannot speak up about a very important issue because they are not meeting your standards of perfection. And I, I kind of question those people, like, are they going home and using electricity? Because they're probably living in a state where they are using some dirty energy, whether or not they want to, whether or not they intend to, like nobody is perfect because of the systems we live under. And again, 71% of carbon emissions come from 100 companies why are we blaming ourselves? And, you know, again, I think it's really important that we still are living in an environmentally minded way. I'm not taking that away. But what I'm saying is exactly kind of, Caroline, what you're getting at. This is a really empowering thing because when we take the boot off your neck and you can realize that we can address this and come together and stop screaming at each other and figure out how to address the sources and the causes how can we vote and bring in candidates that are actually going to implement policies for us to expand clean energy in states? How are we going to do that and invest in research that's going to be breakthrough clean energy research and have an impact? We can do that in a way that's very productive and forward looking. And we don't need to just scream at each other and tell people that they're not doing enough when they're doing their best. And again, there's this privilege component. A lot of people don't have the luxury, the time, the resources of making the same individual changes in their lives that you might have. And the fact that we don't always acknowledge that and people kind of dedicate their platform to this one specific area, um, that's time taken away from us working together and doing this in a really forward-looking way. So I think it's a really exciting thing. I agree. How do you recommend that people that have this privilege better acknowledge that and use it to be allies and broaden their messaging to be more inclusive? Well, I think that's, you know, this is a really important issue because if you have, you know, a platform and you have that platform because you have been given privilege in life, the role is to lift up the voices of marginalized groups. That's the role. Um, it's not to speak for others. It's to lift up their voices. And we know that representation and diversity and inclusion is so vital. And it actually, it creates, you know, in companies, it creates a more successful company. It creates better work products. Um, it creates stronger communities. I mean, it's not just the right thing to do. It's a better thing to do. It, I mean, it has better results. Um, it's really important. And so I think the more that we can lift up the voices of marginalized groups, if you are lucky enough to have a platform, the better. And that's really important. It's almost an obligation. Another part of this is to make sure you are always giving credit. Um, you know, a lot of uh, communities of color have gotten used to um, their ideas being used by others and giving credit to others and not being a part of that conversation that they started. Um, so I think it's, that's also a really big part of this is making sure that who you're acknowledging um, is the proper person. And kind of beyond that, when I think about privilege in the outdoor industry, um, 
I've kind of learned a lot more recently about the mental health component of all of this. And so there's actually a journalist named Johan Hari who wrote a really great book about depression called Lost Connections. And I know, Caroline, you and I have talked about this. Um, he wrote about kind of his own journey with depression, and then he went around the world and he talked to researchers about the very latest research about depression and found that there are so many misconceptions, even within the science world, about how we're understanding this problem. And he sort of uncovered the nine causes of depression, he called them. And one of them was disconnection from the natural world. Now, these are causes. These are not correlations. This is not just saying somebody who's depressed doesn't go outside. This is also saying if you do not go outside, that can have profound negative impacts on your mental health and well-being. So when we think about it this way, the outdoors no longer is like something some people are interested in, some people are not. The outdoors is a human right. Nature is a human right. Everybody need to access to these spaces. This is how we evolved. If this is something fundamental to what makes us human, to what makes us whole, then that cannot be something that's only available to a privileged few. And unfortunately, that's the reality today. You know, if you're fortunate enough to live near a green space, um, you know, it's really important to think about a lot of people live their whole lives and never see the horizon or don't know what the night looks like with stars or don't know what true darkness is. I mean, even when I, I lived in Washington, D.C., and there were times where I'd come home from work really late at night, um, like 2 a.m., and you look out and it looked like the sun was rising because there was just so much light. And um, if you think about people who live their whole lives in this city, I don't, you don't experience darkness. Um, so it's really important to think about these things and how can we give more people access to these things that we have benefited our whole lives from? Because if you have access to the outdoors, we have taken for granted the mental health benefits we've, um, we've had from it our whole lives. So that's a really important thing. And I think the outdoor industry has this huge opportunity to kind of carry the torch on this issue. And there's a lot of room for growth there and how much uh, the focus is on bringing more people in versus kind of talking to the people who are already privileged enough to be out there. So I, I, you know, I would urge people to think about the next time they're outside, who are you with? Who are you seeing on the trail? And who can you bring along? Yeah, I think that act of feeling like you're invited and included goes such a long way to creating this more inclusive culture. Um, and I love that you're tying it all into this bigger issue of climate. Like on the surface, these things don't seem that related. But as you dig deeper and deeper, you really see that there's a lot of intersectionality. And it's I really appreciate I I wanted to say also as I was preparing for my house testimony for the House Natural Resource Committee when I was speaking about that bill, you helped me so much hone my messaging on climate. So what other advice do you have for how we can improve our messaging on climate? That's a tough issue because I think, I think there's, you know, it's hard to know how to message something effectively. I mean, you look at campaigns and politics and like they have like 10 messages to talk about the same thing because it's very challenging. Um, there is some research in this area. There's actually a lot of research that's very uh, insightful for us as we kind of think about how to message climate. Um, George Lakoff at UC Berkeley uh, has done some amazing work. He's a cognitive linguist on metaphor. And he's actually gone so far as to kind of apply his work to politics for us to better understand framing. And he talks a lot about this famous psychology study that was done several decades ago. And in the study, um, the researchers told the subjects, don't think of a white bear. So Caroline, when I tell you, don't think of a white bear, what do you think of? A white bear. A white bear. That's exactly true. Thought suppression is something that's very difficult. And we actually have, the, we, we, this actually maps with neuroscience. So when you have a thought, um, it fires a web of neurons in your brain. And when you have that thought again, it fires it again, and that web becomes stronger. And there's this, uh, there's this quote in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. Um, so when you're told, like, don't think of a white bear, if somebody is constantly telling you that, that thought becomes stronger in your brain and more likely to arise. So 
the reason the reason I'm talking about white bear, the reason this applies to politics and to climate specifically is because it is very hard to negate an existing frame without strengthening that frame. And so I'll give you an example of this in the climate world. Um, there is a common frame that's put out there that climate policies hurt the economy. That fine, if you want to confront climate, fine, but we have to sacrifice the economy for it or some portion of the economy. And then it becomes this discussion of how much. Now, number one, that's not factually true. That's completely not factually true. We create green jobs. There's a lot happening to stimulate the economy, to grow the economy, to grow GDP. So it's just factually not true. But if somebody's shouting that, it's not effective for me to go stand next to them and say they're wrong and to say, no, climate policies do not hurt the economy because I'm telling everybody to not think of a white bear. Mm. It's strengthening that neural network in their brain. So even though I'm saying not, it's still associating the econ economic or uh, climate policies with hurting an economy. When I say not, it doesn't make a difference. That's strengthening that frame in somebody's brain. So we need to do what's called reframing. That's what George Lakoff, Lakoff calls it, reframing. So when somebody says climate change policies hurt the economy, I'm going to say this is a matter of life. And if we say something like that, like this is a matter of public health, this is a matter of survival, this is, we're talking about human lives, all of a sudden the guy talking about the economy, he's in a different sphere We've reframed the debate. We're starting it in a completely different place. And climate change, we know, first and foremost, is a public health issue. And we can you know, talk about that later if we need. But it's first and foremost a public health issue. And that's where we need to be starting our frames. Um, because climate change is responsible for um, horrifying asthma rates, particularly in communities of color, like we've mentioned, um, greater lung disease, heart disease, missed work days, premature death shortened lifespans, um, you know, tick-borne illnesses, and then obviously natural disasters, which have tremendous impacts on property, um, loss of life and bodily injury, um, and again, are primarily affecting regions that sometimes, you know, in a lot of parts of the world, have the least to contribute to this problem. So when we're talking about public health, we're talking about life. We're talking about survival. And so that's, you know, where we really need to be putting those frames. It's about public health. And that's where we start. And we also know this is the most effective way to talk about climate change. Um, not just the most accurate, it's also the most effective. Um, these are frames that have been tested widely. And you can test climate change as a national security issue, which we know it is not as effective. Even climate change as an environmental issue, not as effective. People care at the end about their public health. And at the end of the day, like wherever you are on the political spectrum, there is not a person out there that doesn't care about the well-being of their child. And that's what's at stake in climate change. That's what we're talking about. So it's really important that we're starting our frames there. And those are also frames that are truly caring about the lesser margin, the marginalized groups or communities of color, low income families that are not a part of this debate as much, because those are the people whose public health has been most impacted by this. I still have this picture of this furry polar bear in my <laughs> mind. <laughs> He's so soft and fluffy. <laughs> I'm just nuzzled up next to him. Exactly. Um, that is an example of the lack, you know, it's really hard to suppress the thought. It's strengthened that in your brain. And it, when we think about priming in psychology, you know, if you thought about that a lot or somebody talked about a white bear a lot, like later in the week, if somebody mentioned an animal, you might think about a white bear more than you think about a squirrel or a dog. I mean, this is what happens. It's like strengthening this neural network in your brain. So it's really important that we think about this. And again, this is stuff that's proven, you know, it's, it's in academia. Um, there is so much insight we have into how to message these things better. Did you learn a lot of this working at the White House? Yeah, a lot of what we were doing at the White House was implementing this. And, you know, there was a, a lot of a lot of what we were doing. I think President Obama was very good at reframing. You know, when people said Obama co Obamacare costs too much, he said healthcare is a human right. Again, starting it at a completely different 
place. And so there were a lot of efforts to do this. And President Obama and Dan Utek and Gina McCarthy at the White House and EPA, they really championed this idea of climate change as a public health issue and really worked to bring that more into the narrative and more into mainstream conversation. Because again, we're talking about social justice here and climate justice. And when we're talking about that, these are the people who have been most impacted by the impacts of climate change um, far before anybody was talking about it. And, you know, I think the sad reality is that environmentalists spent, you know, several decades talking about white bears in the Arctic, polar bears in the Arctic, before they were acknowledging communities of color right next door that have been suffering from this. Because at the end of the day, the earth will survive. You know, I think the whole idea of saving the planet, saving Mother Earth, I don't think it's accurate. It's a misnomer um, because the Earth will be here. Whether or not we'll be here is the question. That's really what's at stake when we're talking about climate change. It's not about saving the Earth. It's about saving ourselves. We're making our environment not hospitable to human life. So really, that's when this is always coming back to public health. This is what it's about. What was it like working for the Obama White House? <laughs> um, it was an adventure. I guess that's how I would describe it. It it was kind of like how you think a White House would be, at, like in a lot of ways. Um, you know, like there were so many. I have memories of just sprinting down a hallway, and I don't remember why or for what, but I just remember like sprinting. Um, or you know, you're eating dinner from vending machines, and you're working through the night and ordering Chinese takeout to. 1650 Pennsylvania Avenue. And um, we have all these late night meetings. And so much of what we were doing was just having this feeling of, we're not here for very long. So we're going to do everything we can to move historic climate action forward. And that was something that we were always told kind of across the board was, do not forget why we're here. And for anybody who's worked in public service or works in activism or you know, in a space that impacts other people, you know, every day, it's a tremendous honor to be able to serve others. Um, and so that's something that was really core to how we were thinking about it and what we were doing. Um, and it was an amazing experience. I mean, he ran a really good White House, he ran a really good management structure. And we were able to do it a lot in the climate space. And sadly, we're seeing a lot of that change. But um, most notably, the, the Paris Climate Agreement endures. And, and you know, I, I'm really faithful that um, we will be able to move back into making, you know, aggressive climate action moving forward with a new president. Wow. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I should clarify. I try to stay hopeful of that as well, although sometimes it's hard to stay hopeful. How long did you work at the Obama White House? I was there uh, collectively about four years. How did you manage that intense adrenaline of trying to create this enormous legacy and with taking care of yourself? Because to me, when I go to DC, those like I go for two or three days at a time and I come home and I'm like more exhausted than having been on a Himalayan expedition. Like I am <laughs> so drained. How do you keep that up for four years, that, that energy? Honestly, like everybody, I think... I, I think it's a common idea that when you go into the White House and you become a political appointee, you go in knowing you're going to burn out. You go in planning on it. Like you are going to work as hard as you can while you're there until you hit burnout. And I did hit that. Um, I did hit that point where I just felt like I, you know, I couldn't do more and it was time to, you know, you have an obligation because you're in a, a, a field where you're serving others. You have an obligation to, to pass that torch onto somebody else who has more energy and can do it better than you can. And I did that as soon as I felt that I was reaching a point where I couldn't go on at the rate I was. And a lot of folks, you know, just worked amazingly hard and smartest people I know work the longest hours. Like there are so many nights at 2am you're walking down the hall and you're just like, Oh, Hey Tyler. And like Tyler's in the office next door and like the lights are on and people are just working and it looks like it's 5pm on a Tuesday. Um, so there is this just like incredible kind of maniacal work environment. Um, but it's always with 
these amazing intentions of just feeling like, you know, the American people gave us four years and then they gave us another four years. And we're not going to take that for granted because they want us to do what we can to make their life better. And that's what we did. We did everything we could to try and make their life better. Um, and so, you know, that's this beauty of public service. And for anybody that's interested in moving into that space, I highly recommend it because it's not only incredibly gratifying, but it's just a wonderful thing to do um, for young people who are really invested in what's happening in their communities in the country to be out there working on that. Wow. Um, that's just, it's so cool to hear your stories about that time. And that was such a special time to meet you there. I remember during one of the meetings we had with your team, we talked about having compassion for coal miners and people who've lost their jobs in this transition to renewable energy. And how do you recommend that we bring that compassion and awareness to people who have this long family history of working in the coal mines? That is so important. I love that you brought that up. Um, it is so important when we think about transitioning transitioning to the clean energy economy, that it's an inclusive transition. And it is so important that we think about communities that have relied on these jobs and these resources for, for generations, that they are not left behind in this. It is so important. And that was a, a really big part of what President Obama did. He did the Power Plus initiative where <clears throat> it was very much focused on helping coal communities through that transition. Um, and, and so a lot of what we want to think about is how are we providing opportunities for economic development in areas that have not received as much investment um, and there is work that's being done and, you know, we, I think we really want to bolster that, especially at the federal level. Um, but you know, I, I really think it's important and that's what matters when, we, when we're talking about social justice and climate justice, that includes communities that people might not typically think of as, um, having had a big role in energy and having a big place in clean energy moving forward. Yeah, that trip to D.C. when I met you, and I think we had that meeting I was talking about at the White House at like 8 p.m. or 8.30 p.m. It was yeah. so late, but <laughs> your whole staff was there and super excited to meet with us and with um, the athletes, the group of athletes from Protect Our Winters I was with. And I remember another moment on that trip that was um, just really emotional for me. And one of the things I didn't mention in your introduction is that you're, maybe I did, but you're also a very avid mountaineer and alpine climber. And so during that, that trip, you invited us to do a VIP tour of the White House. And this was in October, 2014. And we shared this moment that nearly brought me to tears. It was a really hard time for me personally, because it was just a few weeks after one of my best friends in the whole world, Liz Daly, had been killed in an avalanche. And I remember you told me that she had taught one of your mountaineering courses. And I know this is like a 180 degree pivot from everything we've been talking about, but it was such an emotional moment for me. I was just wondering if you could tell me more about what you remember about Liz. Yes, I remember that moment. Um, it was you, me, and Gretchen Blyler, I remember. And you were talking about people who have doubted you in your career. And you were talking about how much of an impact Liz has ha had had on you. And I remember we were just entering into the um, into the gates of the West Wing at that moment. And um, that was amazing. I was so excited to meet you. And yeah, Liz taught me how to climb. Um, I feel so grateful that I got to be one of her students and I know she impacted so many, probably every single one of her students in a really huge way. Um, and that's what she did for me. And I remember just showing up my first day and, um, Liz was my first impression of what an alpinist was. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and for anybody that doesn't know what she looks like, I mean, she's, she was beautiful, tall, blonde, and she was wearing like these rhinestone sunglasses and talking about how ugly glacier glasses were. <laughs> and I remember having this moment where I just thought, whoa, you don't have to act a certain way or be a certain way to be in this. You can just be in it. And, you know, so many things she just kind of said throughout that week, even in passing, we're kind of getting at this idea of like, you have nothing to prove to anybody. And like, everybody can be here. 
And I really noticed that she really like didn't take people's psych for granted, you know, like especially newbies. I came in, I don't even think I knew how to tie a figure eight. <laughs> and then she made me come out of that, you know, being able to be a proficient member of a, a rope team and, um, and just being able to be so excited with people uh, who were new to this, even though she'd been on that mountain so many times. And, uh, you know, a lot of mountain guides get, you know, kind of jaded and exhausted with doing the same thing. And like beginners can be kind of annoying to them. And, and she was just so happy that people were there with her. And that was the most amazing feeling. And I remember we did a summit attempt and we'd had bad weather that whole week. It was like, it was really very much like spring conditions in the Cascades. And, um, we left at 4 a.m. for our alpine start, and I remember we were ascending, and uh, there was this lenticular cloud on the summit, and it just looked like this like gray UFO saucer. Um, and now, kind of with the experience I have now, I kind of look back, and I'm like, Liz probably knew this was a no-go, but she still let us um, climb up a few thousand feet, and eventually we're in a whiteout, and we just kind of sat it out. And then I remember she was just like, let's go rock, like, let's go climb rocks in the sun. <laughs> and I was really bummed, you know, it was my first time out there and I didn't know better. And I remember her just saying, you know, Molly, it's not about the summit. And, um, alpinism is about risk time is experience. And you're going through that. You're, ge you're getting a better understanding of that. And that really stuck with me. And then I remember we just sprinted down and I, like we were going down so fast. I remember thinking I felt like I was skiing. <laughs> and that's awesome. Yeah. And that's what we did. We went and climbed rocks in the sun. And then that night her and I went to Trader Joe's and bought a bunch of cheap red wine and like poured it in our now jeans. And we hung out at some campsite. I still don't know where this was somewhere near Bellingham. Um, and just like laughed all night. And I also, I remember her talking about, this crazy thing to me where she was talking about um, going to climb and ski in the Kamchatka range of Russia, which I didn't even know existed. And she was talking about like kayaking to a mountain and climbing it and skiing down or snowboarding down. And that just blew my mind, like a water approach. <laughs> and I remember just having this moment where I was like, whoa, it's okay to have huge dreams. Like I can, I can dream so big. I can have dreams that scare me, you know? And, and, um, and I remember at one point that night, I told her that I had had such an amazing week and I felt like, you know, this is the kind of stuff I want to be doing. And I was about to start my job at the white house. Actually. Um, it was like my little fun in between. And I knew I was going to go move to a city where climbing wasn't much of a thing. And, mountains weren't a thing and, um, just work pretty much nonstop. And I remember telling her, I said, I'm scared to go back. And I remember exactly what she said. She said, you're strong and you'll get there eventually. And I have no doubt she lifted up others with the same words. And, um, that really stuck with me because when I went back, that was, it, it was exactly what I expected. I mean, it was so intense and there wasn't, any work-life balance and you were just doing what you could. And I'm so grateful I had that opportunity, but there were nights at 2 a.m. in the office where I kind of looked around and just questioned where I was and if I could keep doing it. And what she said about you'll get there eventually really stuck with me. And I now, you know, I now live in San Francisco and get to climb on weekends and I'm up in the Cascades where she taught me to climb all the time. And, um, you know, I, I look back at how true that was. And I always kind of interpreted that to mean, um, you know, you'll get to where you're happy. You'll get to where you need to be. Um, so it was so, it was just such an honor to get to meet her and to be impacted by her in so many ways. And um, I'm just really grateful I, I had that opportunity. I really feel like I went into that week different than I came out because of her. I'm like sitting here in tears because I just remember that moment we shared and I was so excited that you knew Liz. And when you lose someone in the mountains like that, it's just the worst sense of loss because like, I don't know, it was weird because I would still have like her chats, her little like icon on my mm -hmm. Facebook messenger. And it was like, I wanted so badly to reach out to my best friend and to lose her. I don't know. Just when you shared your memory with of her with me that night, it was like, 
this spark of joy and it's really important to me to keep her memory alive. So thank you so much for sharing that. And when I think about Liz, I just, what was super cool about that moment for me is that Liz had this bright light she brought into the world and this sparkle with everything she touched. And when I met you, I felt that exact same energy. And so I sort of felt like this piece of Liz was alive with you and it was like this connection. And anyway, I just really appreciate you going into that because I miss her so much. And like what you described about how she never, just that vision of what an alpinist looks like, like this beautiful, long blonde hair and her bright blue <laughs> eyes. It was, she broke every rule in the book and I loved it. And she just brought so much joy to my life. So anyway, thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to ask, what else have you learned from your time in the mountains that, that translates into activism? Oh, <laughs> you know, I, no, I, it's funny because it's like, it's so true. I do think there are so many similarities. Um, you know, a friend of mine is like a really avid rock climber in Yosemite and he's like always climbing in the sun and just having a fun time. And the, uh, he doesn't do anything alpine. And the other day I remember him just telling me, he was like, you know, it seems like mountaineering is just a glorification of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> and I laugh because I think... I think a lot of climate work is kind of like that. I think, mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, you are, you're facing this objective that feels completely insurmountable. I mean, it's a crisis. It's like a big mountain, right? And, um, and you just kind of question, what can I do to, to get to where I need to be, to be working on this issue or to be ascending this mountain? And, um, and you just have to break it down piece by piece, pitch by pitch, and, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think um, for anybody who's been in the Alpine, you know, like you sometimes you just find yourself in situations you just kind of wish you weren't in. <laughs> kind of look around yep. and you're like, this is, this is pretty suboptimal. And, you know, I think the best activists I know are pragmatists. These are people who like get stuff done. Like they are not purists. Um, and I think there's so much of that in alpinism and, and in climbing and it's like in, in general, it's, it's like, um, you know, you might find yourself somewhere where you need to build an anchor and you just don't have the gear you want and you have limited resources and whatever situation you're in, in the climate world. And you have to make do with what you have. you have to make something with what you have left and you have to improvise and problem solve. And maybe you're like, okay, I'm going to bring my body into this anchor, do something, but you have to do something to keep climbing and to keep ascending. And I think that's really true. I mean, I think when you are so principled that you're kind of blinded by the ability to move forward, that's an issue, right? So, you know, politics can be exhausting and difficult and I have no I have so much compassion for people who are just sick of it. <laughs> I know it can be very hard, but <laughs> at the same time, um, you know, I think sometimes there's this idea in activism that you can be above, you can be above government officials, you can be above politics. And I think there is so much you can do from the outside for sure. But in terms of policy specifically, like the activists that have gotten policies implemented, um, those folks are willing to sit down with politicians because those politicians are going to make what they have in mind. They're going to make it law. So there is this really big pragmatism to what you do. It's not always perfect. And President Obama always talked about, um, for example, Martin Luther King Jr. in the Voting Rights Act, he had to make concessions. He had to make compromises. It was not perfect. But at the end of the day, they got a Voting Rights Act. And, you know, if you're an alpinist and you're a purist and you're going to climb a mountain, you're going to have to turn back pretty early when things aren't perfect. And, you know, it's not exactly the controlled environment. It's not exactly what you expected. Um, but you have to problem solve and keep moving forward. And so that's something I think I've kind of learned from both domains that I can translate between the both. I think that mountaineers make some of the best activists. So all those outdoors people with those skills, they really, I think all the things you learn from your time in the outdoors, they translate really well to activism. So I hope more outdoors people will find their voice. What mountain are you excited to climb next or what adventure? So my plan in May, 2021, which I actually don't know if this is going to happen anymore, was to do Mount Francis in the central Alaska range, uh, on the, the Southeast Ridge is really excited about. Um, so that's been my plan. And I was actually going to go in 
this May. And I don't think that's going to happen anymore for very obvious reasons and for good reasons to not go. But um, that's kind of my objective that I'm working toward right now. That sounds awesome. I can't wait to hear how that goes. You'll have to keep us updated. I hope we can get out for an adventure in the mountains together. Yes. yes. Okay. I do rapid fire questions at the end of everyone. So I'm going to go, we're going to go through these quick. So just whatever your okay. impulse is, just say it. So favorite TV show. Ooh, uh, Silicon Valley because I'm, I'm living it. <laughs> okay. Favorite book. It doesn't have to be all time. It could be right now. Um, Largesse of the Sea Maiden by Dennis Johnson, who I just think of like as this modern day Hemingway. And it was also on Obama's book list. That's how I found out about it. Great book. Cool. I'll have to put that in the show notes. Okay. Favorite color? White, even though it's not a color. I love snow. I haven't heard that one before. That's a good one. <laughs> okay. Favorite food? Um, chicken biryani. What? Oh, is that Indian? Yeah. Amazing. North Indian dish. Okay. I'll so have good. To, I don't think I've had that one before. I'll have to try that. Okay. Morning. Well, you know how you like it. I will. I will. Morning person or night owl? Oh, night owl. Aspiring morning person for like 15 <laughs> years. <laughs> okay, great. Piece of advice you'd give to your younger self. Oh my God. There's a quote by Yogi Bhajan that changed my life. Totally changed my life. Um, and it's something like um, how someone behaves toward you is more a reflection of their relationship with themselves and not a comment about your value as a person. Hmm. And that was massively impactful for me, this idea. You know, there's so many iterations of this, like don't take it personally or um, it's not about you. But what really got to me about this is there's this like component of compassion in there about um, how somebody behaves toward you is about their relationship with themselves, not about you. And so that that was actually a transformative thing in my life. I love that so much. Okay. Last thing is a call to action. Do you have any call to action for everyone listening? Vote, register people to vote, visit uh, whenweallvote.org. They will get you involved super easy. You'll have fun and you'll be doing something really wonderful for the community and the country. And how can folks support your work and follow along? Oh, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I have an Instagram. <laughs> okay. Do you want me to link to that? Sure. I guess okay. so. Okay, I'll include I, your Instagram. My, my mediocre photography and my mediocre astrophotography. <laughs> I particularly loved your bugaboo photos. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any other public platform, so I guess, yeah. Okay, perfect. I would love to, I would love to hear from folks, and um, feel free to let me know what you think about any of the things we've talked about. Great. Well, thank you so much, Molly. It was amazing to spend the last... 71 minutes chatting with you. It flew by. Thank you so much for all your insight and for sharing with us today. I always love talking to you, Caroline. And thanks, everybody. It's been great to, great to be on. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to listen. Special thanks goes to Avery Sandak for all the time he spent editing the audio on today's episode, to Rising Appalachia for generously providing the music for the opening and closing tracks, and to my partner, Rob Lee, for being extra quiet in the house where I'm recording. If you learned something from today's episode, share it with a friend. Until next time.